Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem, and this is our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time, we were nearing the end of chapter 22. If you recall, David, now a fugitive, had fled to Nov and had received assistance from the high priest of Nov, whose name was Achimelech, the son of Achituv. Achimelech had provided David with food and with a weapon, and David had subsequently fled. At the same time, David was aware that one of Shaul's henchmen was present at Nov and had seen the exchange. None other than Doeg the Edomite, chief of Shaul's officers. Shaul later on will accuse Achimelech and the priests of Nov of treachery. Achimelech will deny the charge, emphasizing in the process David's dependability and loyalty and innocence, but to no avail. Shaul will condemn Achimelech and the priests of Nov to death. He calls upon his officers to carry out his orders, but they refuse to do so, not wanting to strike down the priests of God, which of course would be a tremendous crime. By the way, this is perhaps one of the first examples in world literature of what we might refer to today as refusing orders. Shaul's men refuse to carry out his orders, knowing that those orders are fundamentally flawed and immoral and wrong. Shaul now turns to Doeg, and Doeg, who had provided the information implicating Achimelech, and perhaps even added an untrue and deceitful detail, named that Achimelech had inquired of God on David's behalf, Doeg now carries out the orders and strikes down the priests of Nov, and 85 innocent men lose their lives. The rest of the town is destroyed. The text reports in verse number 19 of chapter 22, men, women, children, animals, all of them killed by the sword. And of course, this stands in glaring and horrific contrast to chapter 15. If you remember Shmuel's directive to Shaul to destroy Amalek, the predatory marauders who made a life, basically, destroying innocent victims, and Shaul refused to destroy them. Those were the orders, precisely that. What Shaul could not do to Amalek, he now does to the innocent priests of Nov. What an absolutely grotesque transformation. There is one survivor, 
and his name is Eviatar, the son of Achimelech. He flees to David and reports on what happened, and David takes responsibility. I know that it is my fault. I realized that Doeg was there, and presumably the text doesn't report, but David never expected that Shaul would go to these lengths. David tells Eviatar, stick with me, I will take care of you, I will watch over you and keep you safe. When the rabbis came to reflect on this particular moment, they arrived at a startling conclusion. They derived the lesson of the destructiveness of Lashon Hara, negative speech, rumor-mongering, which is precisely what Doeg does, basically implicating Achimelech. Even if Achimelech had inquired of God, it had not been with intention to betray the king. But that's how Doeg spins it. And in rabbinic literature, Doeg becomes the archetype for the destructive power of Lashon Hara, of evil speech, and how that can have such an incredibly deleterious effect on relationships, on families, on communities. And that's a terribly important lesson at any time, especially now, with the political climate being what it is. I mentioned last time that in Sefer Tehillim, the book of Psalms in chapter 52, we get a different perspective on these events, one that opens a window into David's emotional life. For the leader, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and informed Shaul, telling him, David came to Achimelech's house. Why do you boast of your evil, brave fellow? God's faithfulness never ceases. Your tongue devises mischief like a sharpened razor that works treacherously. You prefer evil to good, the lie to speaking truthfully. You love all pernicious words, treacherous speech. So God will tear you down for good and break you and pluck you from your tent and root you out out of the land of the living. In this particular moment, David harshly condemns Doeg and the words that he offered to Shaul that led to this destructive outcome. As always, David preserves his faith and his trust in God that in the end, righteousness will prevail. David now flees, and from here he goes to a place called Ke'ilah, Ki'ilah is located in the lowlands of the tribe of Yehudah, which means that it is in the crosshairs of Philistine attack. And sure enough, the people of Ki'ilah are under siege by the Philistines. David is told, God informs him that he will be successful if he fights the Philistines he will be successful in saving Ke'ilah from their clutches. But David's men are very reluctant to undertake this adventure. After all, the farther away they are from the Philistines, the safer they will be, at least from that threat. But God's word is overwhelming, and David cannot resist the fight against the Philistines, 
and he fights them and he defeats them and he saves the people of Ki'ilah who are Israelites from harm. Even so, Shaul now knows about David's whereabouts and sure enough, the people of Ki'ilah prepare to inform on David and turn him over. Now, this is, of course, a shocking turn of events because David has just saved the people of Ki'ilah from the Philistines. So there are a number of possibilities here. Either the threat of Shaul's revenge, especially in the aftermath of the destruction of Nov, is so frightening to the people of Ki'ilah that they will not dare offer David shelter even though he has just saved them. Alternatively, the climate being what it is, the people of Ki'ilah will do what is in their interests, not necessarily what is the right thing to do. David is informed by God once again that the people of Ki'ilah will turn him over if he remains, and therefore he and his 600 men, apparently 200 additional men, have joined his troop, now flee and the text describes them in verse number 13 of chapter 23, they went where they went. They have no destination and no plan and no refuge. It is once again a desperate moment, but at least Shaul breaks off the chase and doesn't pursue David, hearing that he is in fact left Ki'ilah. The text reports that Shaul tried to capture David continuously, and God did not deliver him into his hands. In the meantime, Yonatan, the son of Shaul, meets up with David. He strengthens him with God. He says to him, do not fear. My father Shaul will not capture you, you will be king over Israel, and I will be your viceroy. And my father Shaul knows as much. So this is now the third time that Yonatan and David have created an agreement or a covenant. It is the third time and actually the last time that Yonatan and David will be together. And tragically, Yonatan's vision of a brighter future in which David will be king and he will be viceroy will never come to fruition. We may not appreciate it from this particular little moment, but embedded in Yonatan's words is a messianic ideal. Yonatan, of course, hails from the tribe of Binyamin, the house of Shaul. David hails from the tribe of Yehuda. The tribe of Yehuda are descendants of Leah, the wife of Jacob. The tribe of Binyamin, descendants of Rachel. Rachel and Leah, the two wives of Jacob, represent the earliest fault line in ancient Israel. The two sisters married to the same man, the rivalry and the hatred between them. A symbolic beginning 
to the challenges associated with creating a united Israel. And that fault line continues throughout biblical history. So that Rachel's descendants, the tribe of Yosef, composed of Menashe, Ephraim, and Binyamin, and Leah's descendants, with Yehuda most prominent, always remain separated, not quite brought together. And that's true throughout biblical history until its bitter end. In fact, David will unite the kingdom, as we will see, but after the death of Shalomo, David's son, the kingdom will divide on precisely that fault line. And it's not until the messianic future, Ezekiel chapter 37, that we have a vision of the people of Israel being united, where that means the tribes of Rachel and the tribes of Leah brought together as one. But that's what Yonatan offers us as a vision. You, David, will be king, and I, Yonatan, will be viceroy, and we will work together, uniting the tribes of Israel and creating a single people. But alas, it was not to be. After they strike their covenant, Yonatan leaves. That will be the final meeting between them. In the meantime, the people of Ziph in the region of the wilderness where David is now wandering, inform on David and tell Shaul where he is located. Shaul pursues David and he almost catches him. It's almost a cartoon image. The text describes how David and his men are on one side of the hill Shaul and his men are on the other side of the hill. Shaul simply has to come around the hill, perhaps create a pincer movement and capture him. And he's about to do so. Suddenly, a messenger appears. Rashi alerts us, injecting a miraculous element to the moment that it's an angelic messenger, a messenger approaches Shaul and indicates quickly, break off the chase. The Philistines have attacked and you have to fight them. To his credit, Shaul lets go and does what the king of Israel should do, which is defend his subjects from harm. Leaving the chase behind, David now escapes his clutches once again and Shaul presumably will go and fight the Philistines. From there, David goes and he remains in the region of what is referred to as Mitzadot Ein Gedi, the fortresses or the, 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 the cliffs of Ein Gedi. If you have been to Ein Gedi on the shores of the Dead Sea, so you know that it is a rugged terrain in the Judean desert. And to this day, as reported in chapter 24, the wilderness of Ein Gedi is inhabited by the Ye'elim, or the mountain goats, that are mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 24. I should just point out, if you have ever been to Ein Gedi or plan to go in the future and you stand at the waterfall in Ein Gedi, 
which is basically runoff from the Judean hills that's making its way down to the Dead Sea. It's fresh water. Today we refer to it as Mapal David, the waterfall of David, but that's obviously a modern name. But you can be certain that David and his men did stand at that very waterfall. In fact, anyone who comes to the region of Ein Gedi will find their way to that waterfall because it is a source of life in an otherwise barren landscape. And so certainly David, who finds himself now in the barren, dry, desolate wilderness, known as the Judean desert, will find his way to Ein Gedi. And there Shaul will now once again attempt to capture him, this time taking 3,000 of his chosen fighters. There is a cave, and Shaul enters the cave in order to relieve himself. Little does he realize that David and his men, some of them at least, are hiding in that very cave. David's men encourage him to take the opportunity to strike down Shaul in his moment of vulnerability, and David refuses to do so. He cuts a corner off of Shaul's cloak, but will not harm him. As he says, I will not be responsible for killing the anointed of God, because he is Mashiach Hashem. And David will not allow his men to attack Shaul in spite of the fact, as his men put it, this is the moment that you have been waiting for. So what incredible nobility. Here is Shaul, defenseless, vulnerable, the very same Shaul that has spent so much time and resources attempting to capture David, the Shaul who would not hesitate to kill David if he was given the opportunity, and David refuses to harm him. Shaul leaves the cave, and David now follows him. Shaul makes his way, and David calls him back, Adoni HaMelech, my master the king. Shaul turns around, and David bows down and prostrates himself. And then in a very, very eloquent speech, he says, why are you listening to the people around you that are feeding you lies? As if I would want to harm you. You can see I had an opportunity to kill you. I spared your life. Surely you know the ancient proverb, may rishaim yetzei resha, wickedness will consume the wicked, I will have nothing to do with it. David says, why are you chasing me? A dead dog, a gnat, a mosquito. Surely you have better things to do with your time. God judge between us. God will preserve me from your hands. And when David finished speaking those words, Shaul says for short, poignant and pathetic words in verse number 16 of chapter 24. Is that your voice, my son David? And Shaul lifted up his voice and he cried. Tears of regret, tears of remorse, 
tears of a bright future squandered and destroyed and consumed by a hatred which was misguided, misdirected, and ultimately wrong. You are more righteous than me, says Shaul, because you bestowed goodness on me where I had bestowed evil on you. And I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Swear to me by God that you will not destroy my descendants. And David swears. Shaul returns to his house, to his palace in Givat Shaul, and David and his men ascend into the fortress, the hilltops, the cliffs of Ein Gedi. It's not a moment of resolution because Shaul will never give up the dream of capturing David. But it is a moment in which Shaul reveals that not only is he aware of the fact that David will in fact be king, but he is resigned to it. And he knows that God's decision is the right one because David is the more righteous and fit to be the king of Israel. Those poignant moments in the book in which we see David's strength of character, his bravery, his courage, his trust in God. We see Shaul's regret and the pathos of the moment as he breaks down in tears and cries for the kingdom that's lost and for the opportunity squandered. And we realize that the future holds something bright for David and that even Shaul will acknowledge that he will be king one day. And with that, the chapter ends, as I said, without full resolution insofar as their relationship is concerned, but at least some sort of an indication from the horse's mouth, as one would say, that David will be safe, will be preserved, and ultimately will triumph. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.